Amen. Good morning, church family. All right, let's try. Oh, careful. Don't fall, Michael. All right, let's try Michael not falling and me greeting everybody again. All right, ready? Good morning, church family. There we are. That's good. Uh, so glad you're here with us today. We are working our way through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, might I just say this, as we, as we prepare our hearts to approach this text, um, if you were to think of the Bible as the temple of God, like the Old Testament temple, uh, this passage we're about to enter into today, to me, this feels like the Holy of Holies. Uh, it's like a peek behind the curtain into the life of Jesus. Just to review, we have been with Jesus here, seeing his last days, how he, how he spent rather what we would probably mark as unextraordinary events that he used to serve an extraordinary God. And here we are today in the text, and we're seeing Jesus observe the Lord's Supper, actually the Passover, that it's going to later be the Lord's Supper that we observe now. And we're going we're gonna to think about that. We're going to see how Jesus looks behind at what God has done to deliver his people. And then how he looks forward uh, as well in the new covenant. So if you have your Bibles then, let's, let's take them up here and let's read this passage together. I also want to add, it's kind of nice that we're doing this outside of Easter so that we're not distracted by all the activities of Easter, that we can actually just really ponder these things in our heart. Isn't that good? I think that's a good thing. So here, here's the word of God, church. Uh, hear it. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover land had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Then said, they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. They went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And then he gave thanks and said, Take this and deliver and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Amen. 
May God have blessed in the reading of his holy, inerrant, infallible word. And I pray he writes this truth on all of our hearts. The word of God tells us about itself. That the grass withers, the flowers fade. Say it with me if you know it. But the word of our God endures forever. Luke is a masterful storyteller. I don't know if you realize this, but the way that he uses language, the way that he draws our attention to certain things in the text... He has told us that Satan has entered Judas here and that there is a betrayer in the midst. uh, That the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and scribes have been looking for a way to catch Jesus away from the crowd. There would be no better ideal time than to catch him at Passover. Beloved, listen. Passover is the Super Bowl of holidays for Jewish people. It is their Christmas, Easter, and all other major holidays wrapped up into one. That and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And every family would kind of do this. Now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the Passover feast, but I want to kind of walk you through what a Jewish Passover celebration was like. But before I do that, I want to, I want to point out something to you. First of all, this account of the Last Supper is recorded in four places in the New Testament. So you repeat something, it's important. Three of the places that we find it, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then in the Gospel of John, we see them sort of emphasizing the service and the washing of the feet, but not the events of the dinner itself. Where is the fourth place that the Lord's Supper is recorded, if not the fourth one being in the fourth Gospel? Does anyone know? 1 Corinthians, that's right. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is the fourth place that you will find the the Lord's Supper and the instruction on that. And so I want us to kind of see that. And another thing that sticks out to me, one thing that is unique and different here in this passage is this, this, the way that Luke grabs us right at the beginning. Look, go all the way back with me to the verse, very first verse that I read. Look what he says in verse 7. What's the first phrase? Then came the day. Now, if you're just casually reading your Bible, you may be tempted to just sort of glaze over this little phrase here. But let me kind of put this in perspective for you. We open the service today with Zechariah, right? Zechariah prophesying and talking about how God is fulfilling his covenant and how salvation has come, how the enemies will be trampled on, right? This is the day that has been working on from eternity past all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when the prophecy was given that the snake would bruise the heel of Eve's son, but he would crush the serpent's head. This is the day that we have been waiting on all the way back in the Old Testament whenever the Jews were trying to leave the yoke of suppression under the Egyptians and the Passover instructions were given. Also on an important note, Anybody could have done it. You could have been a God-fearing Egyptian and you could have kept the commands that were given that Moses gave to slaughter the lamb, put the lamb's blood on your doorpost, and the angel of death would pass over your home and that lamb would be a substitute for your oldest born. All the way forward to the prophets prophesying of a man who would come to the last of the Old Testament prophets, and that is John the Baptist. When the last of the Old Testament prophets went out into the desert, saying, prepare the way 
Make straight the way of the Lord. And people came from all over Israel in the known world to be baptized by this strange Old Testament prophet who wore camel's hair, ate locusts and honey, and occasionally walked backwards. He looked funny. He lived in a funny place, and he proclaimed the truth of God. And then we see Jesus, and John says, there he is, the Lamb of God, right? Follow him, he tells them, his followers. Jesus gets baptized to fulfill all righteousness by John the Baptist, and he begins his ministry. The water is turned to wine, the storms are silenced, the dead are raised, the blind receive their sight back, death cannot hold what Christ calls back from the tomb. And then the day came. All these events that both tell us that Christ is God and that point to the kingdom that is to be and that is coming through, the day has come. Another unique detail here that Luke masterfully points out in the next verse. He tells Peter and John to go and prepare. Why Peter and John, right? First of all, what all had to be done with this preparation? You know, if you highlight in your Bible here, if you're a highlighter, I'm not asking you to violate your conscience. It's the Word of God that's timeless, not the ink and the paper that it's written on. But I wouldn't ask you to violate your conscience. Do what you feel is best. Prepare comes up over and over and over again using that word. And look, let's just think about what had to be done, right? You know, the disciples and Jesus, they're a, a wandering group along the, the Galilean countryside. You know, this is a, they don't have, you know, Jesus does not have a, you know, luxury suite in Jerusalem, right? The capital of the day. And they're in Jerusalem. Remember what I told you last time? Jews from all over the known world, from Greece to northern Africa, have, have, have descended here on Jerusalem. And this place is like swelled to like 400% capacity. All right? So they don't have a place to go yet. The Pharisees and Sadducees are trying to catch Jesus away from the crowds. Passover would be a great time to do it. So we know, we know why he didn't tell Judas to go prepare the meal because we didn't want to give Judas... He didn't want Judas to have that information so he would be arrested because he has a desire to, to observe this Passover meal with his disciples. Okay? And he selects Peter and he selects John. And just imagine as the shadows are drawing out that day, he, he, the, the work they must do to get this ready. Remember what I told you last week? They couldn't just go get any old lamb for the Passover. It had to be a priest-approved lamb, a lamb that had been observed by the priest for a week so that they were without flaw, without uh, you know, virus or sickness or anything, that they were suitable to be offered to the Lord. Once they get that lamb, they would have to take it back. It had to be slaughtered. The blood had to be collected. And then the blood was taken and a branch from a hyssop was dipped in the blood. And the, the branch was smeared. The blood on that branch was smeared on the doorpost sides and on the overhead of the doorpost that they were going to be observing the Lord's Supper. Then they had to roast the lamb. Important note, you need a lamb the size of the group observing it together, usually a family. So if you had a small family and you need to get a lamb, you would generally try to go in with your neighbor and the neighbors, well, you would do this together, get a lamb together because you had to consume all the lamb, all of the food for the Passover 
needed to be consumed at one time. It didn't have refrigeration. This was, what the, uh, this was part of the observation of the Passover in Jewish tradition. As they looked back to God delivering them up out of Egypt, this was part of how it developed and came part of it. Now, but that tells us a little bit about the preparation that they needed. And another thing that's kind of neat here is right now they're just kind of following the instructions of Jesus. But no doubt they're going to look back and see Jesus has given us an amazing image here of the lamb that will be sacrificed in a short time for the sins of the world. No doubt they will look back for the rest of their lives and think of this night when they were asked by Jesus to prepare the lamb. But Luke notes Peter and John are the two. But I began asking myself this question, why Peter and John? Why? Have you ever asked that before? Why Peter and John? Well, it will be Peter and John in the book of Acts, which is like Luke part 2, who will be the prime preachers and speakers of the gospel. It will be Peter and it will be James, or it will be Peter and it will be John who will stand at the gate beautiful and will proclaim, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give you. Take up your mat and walk. It will be Peter and it will be John, who will stand before the Sanhedrin and face all their fiery wrath. It will be Peter and John who will go to the Samaritans, who will present them the gospel and pray that the Holy Spirit falls on the believers that are there. It will be their preaching Uh, that will begin something new on the day of Pentecost there. Peter will give a sermon that the the Spirit of God will fall on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You know, Jesus here is showing himself to them and making sure they understand this in as many ways possible that he is the Lamb. Uh, Anyone who believed, Jew or Egyptian, could be part of this Passover celebration. But again, these verbs, look at these, prepare finish, determine. Now it's debated, you know, as Jesus tells them what to do and where to go. Scholars debate if this was a supernatural preparation, that it was sort of like done in a way similar to, you know, going to catch the fish and the money in the mouth, or was this something that he set up like you and I might set up beforehand? We don't know, and to be quite honest, I don't know how much that really matters. What matters is this, Jesus had prepared and made things ready to go. You think about all the work that Peter and John had to do in securing the lamb and getting the food ready and and roasting that lamb and with the blood and the slaughtering and all that. It's a lot of work. No one person could have prepared all that, but Jesus is kind of the overarching preparer here of all this. What are we learning here in this instruction and in this demonstration here? I think one thing we're learning is this. We must appropriate his work to demonstrate that he is in control. I must appropriate his work to demonstrate he is in control. If he's given us command like he did Peter and John, we should do it because when we keep the commands of God, what we're saying to the Lord is, you're in control, not me. Even if it doesn't make sense, we should do it anyway. You see, here's the reality. What we're being called to here in these passages and what's being demonstrated here is that we must trust in his plan to look forward as well as back. This was always the plan, right? All the way back in the garden was the plan that this would happen, that Jesus would fulfill the covenant promise that, and he does not want them to miss this. So he's looking back and looking forward. Now, 
let me describe for you what a Passover meal was like. There was the anteroom that they would have come in initially. Now, that's, I don't know if anyone here is familiar with that term. It's an Arabic term. It just kind of means the room before the room. So it's similar to like the foyer. You know, you walk into the foyer here at church before you come into the sanctuary. It's like the anteroom, okay? So in the anteroom, you would have, first thing you're going to need to do is wash your hands and your feet, right? You come in there in the anteroom, wash your hands, wash your feet. It's an issue of being cleansed there. And then they're going to have, for lack of a better word, you're going to have hors d'oeuvres all around you, okay? There'll be hors d'oeuvres there, and you'll have, like, radishes, and there will be uh, dates, there will be figs, uh, there will be celery, which I'm, I hate celery. I don't know if you know this or not, but sometimes I pray that God would send a virus and destroy celery from the face of the planet forever. These are my private prayers. But anyway, I hate it. So if I ever get sick, please don't bring me a soup full of celery, okay? Just don't, right? Put carrots in it. I love onions, but not celery, right? But they would have all these different little dishes there. Cheese, eggs would be available in the anteroom. No bread. No bread in the anteroom as you start in when the hors d'oeuvres. The bread is reserved for the meal itself, for the Passover meal itself, okay? So you would spend time there socializing, gathering, enjoying the hors d'oeuvres, enjoying the fellowship with your family, with your friends, with your disciples in this case. Then you move into the actual room where the dinner is going to be had. Now, it was not uncommon in that, in that time to sit at a table in a chair for a dinner. But we have seen this happen already, usually for important dinners, like special occasion dinners, like the Passover, which is the Super Bowl holidays. They would sit in what's called a triclinium, right? And remember, Jesus made sure this was furnished before they got there. So this was already taken care of. Triclinium, sort of like a V or a U-shape table. And what you would do is you would sit on the ground at a triclinium, and you would lean in with your one arm, okay, like this. You have your legs sort of behind you there. And then you would eat with the other hand. And there would be a bowl for you to wash as you eat. And then the other participants that are there at the Passover would also be leaning on the table. And to the point where whoever was on your right side would like be leaning on your chest almost. Now you're, you had in the center of it, the triclinium, would be the head of household. Or in this case, it would be Christ. And the person that is, the Bible records sitting to his right is the Apostle John. So it's kind of a beautiful picture to think of Jesus reclining at table here in this passage and the Apostle John laying on his chest. Now, why was John on the right of him? Usually in the Passover meal, whoever the youngest of the family sits to the right of the head of household. And the job of the youngest is to ask questions during the meal. And the reason we think John is the youngest is a few reasons. One reason we think John is the youngest is because of the position he takes here at the Last Supper, sitting to the right of Jesus. So that would give, he would have to be the youngest of the group to do that. And then two, John lives the longest of any of the disciples. And so we think he was probably the youngest because of that at this particular stage in the game. So John lays on Jesus' chest. Beautiful picture there. He asks questions that need to be asked as they're eating there. You know, they're very close quarters there. Server comes in to serve them whatever food is there. And they're eating and they would eat the roasted lamb and eat with bread and, and use that almost like a napkin as we've talked about before. Uh, at the, uh, one thing I forgot to mention, in the anteroom when they come in, you would like ask a blessing. Each individual would ask a blessing over the Passover meal they were about to eat. They would come in before they would eat again. They would ask another blessing, sit down, the triclinium, eat. Whenever the 
table was done and they had had their full and the lamb was their fill and the lamb was gone, they would then begin singing psalms and hymns. And they would sing Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. Usually conclude the whole Passover meal with Psalm 118. That was their hymn book. That was their psalm book. That was their, you know, words on the screen was the psalms. And uh, I think we're planning on hearing from the close of the service today from Psalm 118, which is fitting, isn't it? You know, one of the few things we see here, um, Jesus here tells us in the passage about the new covenant, right? Making reference to the old covenant that's being fulfilled. And here Jesus comes and he is, he is taking the Passover meal and he's kind of making it into something new. It's a fulfillment of the covenant. And uh, one thing that's interesting, right? I think most of us in here have been in church before, maybe all of us. Have you ever had lamb whenever you've done the Lord's Supper at church? You ever had any meat whenever you've done it? Do you know why? Anybody know why? Never thought about it, had you? I'm going to make you think about it today. Here's why. We don't need a lamb substitute anymore because Jesus was the final lamb to be slain for our sin. So we don't need a substitute for death anymore because Christ completed that. That's part of the new covenant, right? We've had the lamb who has been sacrificed. Now, something that, you know, he says here in the passage, he talks to us and he says, you know, this bread is my what? What does he say in the passage? The bread is my, my body. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Why, why the bread? Why, you know, and this is the main part of the meal where he's doing this as I described it to you earlier. I want you to think about something for a minute with me, okay? When we get to heaven, what will our body be like? What will it be like? For those of us who trust in Christ. It will be perfect, right? No more arthritis in my right shoulder. Praise God. I'm looking forward to that, right? Uh, Becky won't have that screw in her foot from where she had that surgery anymore. That won't be needed anymore. It will be perfect body, right? Anything that your body has been marred by sickness, sin, virus, it will be no issue anymore, okay? Get up and can run, right? And not get tired. Those of you who like to run, not get tired. Every body in heaven is perfected and without blemish except one. And whose body is that? It's the body of Jesus Christ. Do you remember when he came back and he stood before Thomas the doubter and what did he say? He said, stick your hands in the holes in my hands and see that it's me. Stick your hand, you can put it right here if you want. Where the, where the soldiers stabbed me between my ribs to see if I was actually dead. The mark remains. You can, you can, the wound is here. Stick your hand here and see, right? Jesus' body will remain scarred because it will be a reminder, right? We will feast on the joy that is knowing Him. Feast on the, the forgiveness and the grace that we have through His broken body. So when we take the Lord's Supper... We're not intrinsically adding something. We're remembering. It is a symbol of what Christ has done and what He has fulfilled. The Old Testament passages on the sacrifice have been fulfilled and are now null and void. The passages that deal with the theocracy of Israel, fulfilled and now void. But the passages on morality, on a sexual ethic that we have, affirmed by Christ and stand, but now standing in the grace of God. His scars will remain as a testimony that he was broken for our sin. 
we feast on his sinless body, which was broken for us. And when 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that uh, there was a church discipline case in the church at the time, a man was having relations with his stepmother, and it was known throughout the community, and the church was doing nothing about it. And he says, stop it before the leaven gets into the bread, right? Before the sin gets in there, before the testimony of the Lord is messed up for the wider community. In a similar fashion here, it is, it is the same concept. They would eat the unleavened bread in the Passover. It's why we still use that flat unleavened bread that is there to show that it is a body broken, sinless, without blemish. It is the body that was marred for you and for I. So that is why we do that. Now, another thing I want to say about this. Uh, we live in the new covenant of his shed blood. He says he, he takes the cup and the, and the wine is the new covenant of the blood. You'd usually have one glass of wine when you came in in the anteroom. You would have another glass whenever you were having dinner. Perhaps one more to conclude at the very end. Three total, no more than three there as you were part of this Passover celebration. He takes the cup and said, this is the covenant of blood. So there's not a need for the preparation as it once was. That's where we take the juice and we know the blood is spilled and the wrath of God is appeased by the spilling of blood and now the wrath passes over us because we are covered by the blood of Christ. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? So now how should we think about the Lord's Supper, right? Because there's been a lot of different preaching and teaching on this. There's different churches and I generally don't try to run churches down or run other people down in my sermons but I want to be clear with the teaching this morning and make something very abundantly clear we see the Lord's Supper not not as a sacrament but as an ordinance when I first started preaching here some of you know him some of you don't there was a member of our church named Harold Smith. He's very ill now. He's not able to come as much. But I was kind of scared of Harold because every Sunday when I would preach, Harold would usually be waiting for me at the conclusion of sermon uh, to either give me a pointer or point out something that I didn't say correctly because when you speak as many times as I do in public, you inevitably make blunders and mistakes. Uh, like what Dr. Moeller said once. He said, if you lay an egg, just admire it for a minute. And that's what I try to do every now and then. So anyway, but one Sunday morning we were having the Lord's Supper and I mistakenly said, just in a rush, we're going to now have the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And it was, anyway, he was waiting on me when it was over. He was waiting on me. It is not a sacrament. It is an ordinance. It, and what he was saying is, it is not a means of grace, Okay. And I was like, I was in my doctoral work at this point, and I was kind of complaining to one of my classmates about it. I was like, yeah, there's this deacon in my church, man. He, every Sunday he's waiting on me. So last Sunday, he called me out for saying the Lord's Supper was a sacrament, and my professor said, and he was right to do so. So it's like Harold got to call me out twice without even being there both times. And uh, he said, it is not a sacrament. It is not a means of grace. When we do the Lord's Supper, it is symbolic. When we take the Lord's Supper, it is a symbol of the new covenant that is fulfilled. It does not give you forgiveness of sins. It does not intrinsically give you anything that you did not have apart from the gospel before you came in. Right? I thought that would get an amen. Thank you. Don't make this mistake, right? It's an important symbol because it's a symbol where we are reminded of Christ's sacrifice and unity. 
So it's an important thing. Just like baptism is a reminder of the death, burial, and resurrection, the Lord's Supper is a reminder of the sacrifice and the broken body and the blood. Okay? So it's an important symbol, but it is a symbol. And it makes us examine ourselves. Right? You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we should not take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. There are other churches other than us and what they have done is in their worship service, it's not the preaching of the word that's central, but the Lord's Supper is central. They call it the Eucharist, okay? You're going to find this more in your, like, Episcopal-type church or um, those type churches and situations. And they teach that it is sacramental and it is a means of grace. And that's, like, the whole big thing that's in there. I, I want to share with you real quick a very heartbreaking story. I had a friend. I loved him. And he was probably, he was in ministry, and he was one of the best at his job that I've ever seen anybody in that job before. And he loved going to the Episcopal Church. He would go there. They have services all through the week because, you know, they believe that the Lord's Supper kind of gives you, the, gives you forgiveness of sin. And he was, he was, we didn't know this while he was working with us, but he was privately caught in a horrific sin. And so he would go and do this when nobody was around, and he would go to the Episcopal Church, take the Lord's Supper, think that gave him the forgiveness that he needed, and he'd just kind of keep going. And uh, when it all came out and it all blew up, and he lost his position, you know, he said, well, I just, I, just need, I just need the Lord's Supper, I need the Eucharist, and I need the Episcopal Church. And I said, no, you don't, brother, you need the gospel. You need the gospel. Because you don't understand the gospel if you think the Lord's Supper is giving you forgiveness. You, you've missed it. You're not going to get any more forgiveness than you did when you came to Christ. You got it all there. Past, present, future. The Lord's Supper is a symbol. It's albeit an important symbol. Marriage is an important symbol. It's a symbol of Christ in the church. Albeit an important symbol. It's a symbol. It does not intrinsically give you the forgiveness you seek. And sadly, he walked away, walked away from the faith, walked away from the word, walked away from the preaching of the gospel, broke my heart. Lord's Supper makes us examine ourselves. Are we taking it in a worthy manner? Now, Pastor Travis, you are being, don't you think this is, I mean, this is 2022. Why would you say something like that about taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner? That seems a little old and dated. Why why would you bring that up? I bring it up because the Bible brings it up. I'm warning you because I warn my children. I don't want them to mess up and to, to face judgment. And this is the warning from 1 Corinthians 11. I'd encourage you to read it later, right? Don't mar the, the symbol that's given. In the Old Testament, there is, a, there is a narrative passage about Moses who was commanded by God to speak to the rock while they were in the desert. And when he spoke to the rock, that was meant to be a symbol of how God speaks and brings about water and life, Right? And what did Moses do? Instead of speaking to the rock, what did he do? He struck the rock. Now, to you and I, that don't seem like a big deal. But he marred the image that God was after in that symbolism. It was God who was bringing it back. And what was the punishment that God gave Moses because he struck the rock? Do you remember? You'll never enter the promised land. You're going to go up on the mountain Ebo. You're going to look in. You're going to see it. You'll never step foot in it. You'll die. 
on Mount Nebo. You'll never get to enter in. It is important that we take Christ's command seriously. Here's the deal. The Lord's Supper and how we approach the table of the Lord, it makes us either healthier Christians or shows us to be sick pretenders like my friend was. An unworthy manner brings about God's judgment. But in a worthy manner, the symbol is a beautiful thing of the sacrifice of the broken body, the living testimony, the, the blood that's, that stands to appease the wrath of God forever. You see, Jesus arranged everything here. I only have to take him in faith. It's not about keeping up with the Lord's Supper day in, day out. That sounds exhausting to me. Doesn't it sound exhausting to you? It's about accepting the preparation, the furnishings, all that that Christ has done. Judas here, let me, let me warn you here and say this. Judas here is sitting with these disciples. He is obviously a traitor. He obviously has access to truth, right? But let me say this. Access to truth is not the same as accepting truth, is it? If, you, if you're with us on Wednesdays, and I would encourage you to join us if you're not, we're going through the book of Daniel. What we've seen is Nebuchadnezzar was a very proud man who saw God demonstrated over and over again. The life of Daniel through dreams, he saw uh, God over, and yet he remained in his pride. He had access to truth, but he, he did not accept it until he spent those seven times as, a, as an ox in the field. A man that lost his humanity. Then he came to a knowledge of who God was. There's a difference between access and acceptance. Judas here was not saved by partaking of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, the Passover Supper here, was he? Rather, he was condemned. He was completely condemned, even though he did the same thing as James and John and Peter, who would go on to preach the gospel and on down to where we would hear the gospel today. So there are many here. You know, there is... As we, as we close this sermon down and we think about this, whether you're here today in person or whether you're watching us online, it is not an accident that you're sitting here hearing the sermon today. God has prepared it in such a way that you are here now, that you are hearing the gospel this morning, that you're hearing of the flawless lamb who died for the saving, saving of all humanity. And the question is, you have this access this morning to the truth but do you accept it? Maybe today is the day where, you know, you've been here a lot, but it's been pretend. Maybe it's time to stop pretending and to start taking these things seriously. Will you do that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Help us to not be sick pretenders, but rather those who, who are givers of the symbols that we give. They're important. They remind us of the sacrifice that was given, of the joy that it is in having you. Lord, if there's anyone here today or online that does not know you, I pray that you would use this text to draw them to yourself. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing now a song of response. And if you're here today and, and you have not accepted Christ, today is the day of salvation. Come and know him now. If you'd like to be part of this family, let me know. We'll start that process for you. Or you just want to pray and thank God. For the ultimate Passover lamb who was given on your behalf and on mine, won't you do that as we sing? Please stand.